Let me pray for us, brethren, as we begin time in God's Word. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we come to You in humility and fully dependent upon You, Father, even as we open up Your Word. We pray that You would help us to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. I pray that You would help us to think deeply about Your truth, the truth of Your Word, so that we would appropriate it to our lives. Father, give me utterance so that I would be able to proclaim Your Word with clarity, with compassion, with conviction, with courage, and for change, that we would be Christ-exalting people all the more as we walk out of this uh, sermon. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brethren. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, in honor of God's Word, please do so. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to begin reading from verse 1 through verse 8. Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as we've been walking through this wonderful letter, the letter of Philippians, as you know, we have been considering the overarching theme of unity in the gospel as a church. This is an important issue, right? Because in the church there are always going to be challenges to gospel unity amongst us. There are always going to be present attacks by enemies from without. These challenges can come from without. And so Paul has already mentioned some of these, and we'll get to more enemies from without in chapter 3, verses 2 and following. He's going to get there. But these attacks and these challenges to gospel unity can also come from within the church by way of division, by way of dissension, by way of conflict amongst Christians. And it's really this latter challenge of um, attacks on gospel unity from within that is Paul's first and foremost concern as he writes to this Philippian church. In fact, in the first command of the letter, the first imperative of the letter, chapter 1, verse 27, he commanded them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that worthy um, walk is a walk in gospel unity. So he's already exhorted them to gospel unity in chapter 1, verse 27. We saw last week in the chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that he continued with that theme of gospel unity by appealing to them on the ground of how God has blessed them. Look how good God has been to you in the light of that. Walk in unity. And he appealed to them also on the basis of his relationship with them. He says, walk in gospel unity, and in so doing, make my joy complete or full as your pastor. Now, as they contemplate these wonderful spiritual blessings... They are to cultivate the indispensable ingredient we saw last week of selfless humility. 
Without it, without selfless humility, unity in the church is impossible, right? You see, Paul is concerned, brothers and sisters, that that they don't hinder, this church doesn't hinder gospel unity by allowing selfish and self-exalting pride amongst one another. And so continuing in the flow of his argument on the need for selfless humility, the strong need for them to cultivate a heart of humility and lowliness, he now points their attention to this supreme model, to the supreme example of selfless humility, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that we are treading on holy ground here in this particular text. This is one of those famous texts. Obviously, all of the Bible is important, but this is one of those Mount Rainier, if you will, theologically speaking, texts in Scripture. It's called uh, the kenosis passage, the self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great passage. It's an often debated passage, and that's all intriguing and fun over the centuries as people have tried to understand, in particular, what Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 mean. But I want you to note that Paul's primary point is to really present the ultimate illustration of Christ as a supreme example of selfless humility so that, practically speaking, we may learn how to think We may learn how to live and walk amongst one another. We may learn to walk in unity amongst one another. There's a very practical reason, in other words, why Paul is getting into this great kenosis passage as we know it. The most powerful pride-deflating antidote for each of us and for us collectively is the gazing upon the supreme model of selfless humility and obedience who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? How comforting and fortifying it is that as Christians, brethren, we have a Savior who set the pattern for us as to how we ought to think and how we ought to conduct ourselves toward one another before God. And so last week we saw that selfless humility is an indispensable ingredient for gospel unity. And today we want to consider another essential ingredient for gospel unity, and it is that of sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning what it means to walk in selfless humility amongst one another. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And so as Paul instructs these believers, and us as well, the first instruction he gives us is this. We must emulate the example of Christ. We must emulate the example of Christ. That's in verses 5 through 8. In life as human beings, we all need examples. We all need models in particular areas of our lives. And we have those If I were to ask for a show of hands, you would raise up your hand and be able to say, this particular person has been an example to me in a particular area of life. We need that as human beings. Well, here's the ultimate example of selfless humility in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this begins here by, uh, we, we must emulate the example of Christ by adopting the mindset of Christ. I want you to write that down. We must adopt the mindset of Christ. That's in verses five through six. Look in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, he says. And note, by the way, the plural there, yourselves. See that? He's speaking to the collective whole of the Philippian church. This is an instruction to them corporately. That as a church, um, humility is to be the culture of the church, the permeating culture of the congregation, if you will. That they ought to have this attitude, this mindset, which he says in verse 5, was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you want to know and behold the ultimate example and model of the type of mindset, of the type of attitude that you should adopt? Look at Christ. Look at Jesus, he says. Now what attitude is he referring to here? 
What's the attitude of, or mindset of, of verses 2 through 4? That selfless humility that he's called them to already. Now he says, look at Jesus. Here is the picture-perfect example, the supreme example of one who fleshed this out in his incarnation. What kind of thinking is this that he's calling them to? Well, it's not just our individual thoughts that he's addressing here, right? He's not just concerned about that, but he's concerned about how we reason through life, how these Philippian believers also reason through life, how they think through their relationships in the church, how they assess opportunities and decision-making, what they count as important. That's what he's talking about here. See, Paul is not just calling us to think nice things in our heads here in verse 5. In short, what he's calling them and us is to develop a full-orbed Christian mind. That's what he's saying. Thinking that is distinctively Christian, centered on Jesus, it's what Paul refers to in Romans 11.34 as the mind of the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says that believers have the, have the mind of, of Christ. That at salvation, God has begun this amazing work of conforming us to the image of Jesus. And as we continue to grow, the more that we grow and the more that we mature, the more that we adopt the, the thinking of Jesus, the mind of Christ. Learn to think like Christ is his point here taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That is the need of the hour, brethren. The need of the hour, especially in our culture, right, is that we are con to be continually renewing our thinking, our mindset, so that it is Christ-like in nature. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, says that we are not to be conformed to the image of this world, or to be conformed to this world, rather, but be transformed, metamorpho, metamorphosis, be transformed how? By the renewing of our mind. Daily, right? How does this happen? How does renewed thinking happen in our lives? Well, it happens by us daily coming into the Word of God, right? Saturating our hearts and minds with the, a steady diet of God's Word. And why is this important? Well, I've told you before, because we have a lot of stinking thinking, don't we? I do and you do. Every day we need to be washed by the, wa by the water of the Word because we begin to adopt even imperceptibly and subtly the world's thinking in various areas of life, including in how we navigate relationships. Instead of looking to God's Word to help us with these, we often default to how the world handles relationships, to how we grew up and how our families maybe handled things, to worldly philosophies we resort to and default to, Often philosophies that, whose sources are, are faulty because they're not based upon the Word of God. So Paul says, don't adopt any other mindset but the mindset of Christ. And here's the supreme example of humility. Look at him. Look at verse 6. Who, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form, or morphe is the idea there, the form of God, that word form or morphe is a word which speaks not of one's, only of one's outward appearance, right? We, we read that word in English, form, and we think external. We think appearance from the outside, from the eye of the beholder, if you will. But it means more than that. What he's getting at here, this word morphe or form, is of the essential nature of something. It's speaking of the nature or essence of something or someone of the true, real identity of someone. In this case, the incarnate Christ. What this is saying is that prior to His coming to earth, which we refer to as His incarnation, 
right? At that historical moment of his incarnation, Christ already existed eternally in the form or nature or essence of God. He is and was God already. It's saying that in his being, in his essence and his nature, he already existed as God of very God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, as we celebrate during Christmas time. Ponder that for a minute, brethren. Contemplate the wonderful truth of that, or you're not going to get the rest of this, or the implications of this particular passage for our lives. Before the universe was created, before all of those wonderful heavenly entities, before anyone came to be, as far as beings or human beings are concerned, before any uh, heavenly beings were created, Christ was eternally the Son of God, equal with God the Father and equal with God the, Son, the Spirit. This is why in John 5.18, the Jewish leaders became so hostile against Jesus because it says that he was making himself out to be what? Equal with God. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming in the Gospels during his earthly life. And anyone who claimed to be God, to claim to be, claim to be divine, was worthy of death. But Jesus was merely speaking the truth to them. He was telling them exactly the truth in terms of who he was. Do you see also that word existed in verse 6? You see that? Who although he existed in the form of God, that's a present tense verb. Meaning that Christ, at the time of his incarnation, in eternity past, during a historical event of the incarnation, when Jesus came on the scene and into the present and forevermore, always has been God. It's a historical present tense verb. He has always been. Jesus never obtained divinity. Jesus never had to earn divinity. Jesus didn't become God from eternity to eternity. He is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, right? In the beginning, that's before anything or anyone else came into be. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was who? God. In His essence, He is God. He possessed deity forever. He didn't become God. And yet, though He was God, even at His incarnation, what was His mindset, brethren? Look at the text in verse 6. It says that the incarnate Son of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is one of those places where the NIV really hits it in the nose as far as the translation of this particular verse. Verse 6, the NIV translates it this way, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. I like that. That really reflects the Greek very well there. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what this means is this, that though God of very God, though creator of everything, though he possessed everything, though he is a sustainer of it all, though he had infinite rights and privileges, he had the highest place of honor and rank, at his incarnation, Jesus did not use what was rightfully his for his own advantage, for his own benefit. Think about that. He did not leverage his royal position at his incarnation in order to gain power for himself or dominion. Ponder that this Christmas. When you think about that baby in the manger, who we're talking about there? And the amazing condescension of the eternal Son of God in that particular act. Brethren, at his incarnation, Jesus was more concerned with giving rather than with gaining advantage. Someone has said this, quote, 
The pre-existent son regarded equality with God, not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that suffering and death. Oh, I like that. I like that. Christ knew that because he was and is God, he alone qualifies to be redeemer. Anyone less than God, anyone less than fully man, doesn't qualify to be your redeemer. If Jesus is any less than 100% God, any less than 100% fully man, he doesn't qualify to be your redeemer, your savior. There is no salvation from sins. Who he is qualifies him to be able to do what he did, you understand. So, great condescension here. This was the mindset of Christ. And brethren, this is the attitude that you and I must adopt. Obviously, we're not Jesus. There's some uniqueness in this particular text with regards to what Christ did. But this is the kind of attitude which says, I won't hold on to those things, whatever those things are. I won't cling to those things. I won't seize upon my rights so as to take advantage of my privileges in place of honor to exploit other people, to be self-centered, to be selfish. No, I lay down my rights and privileges for the glory of God and the good of others. That's an implication of this wonderful text. Remember, he's pointing to Jesus as the supreme example of humility in order that we would consider how we think and how we live amongst one another in our interpersonal relationships how we treat one another. Look at the context of, Ephesians, of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 especially. When we are tempted to be proud and selfish and self-centered, all we need to do is look at Christ. Think about the infinite chasm between Christ and the extent to which He lowered Himself to do you and I good as sinners saved by grace. Think about it. What did He possess? Everything. Who is he? He's eternal, divine, self-sufficient, all-powerful, benevolent, loving, majestic, glorious, mighty, creator, sustainer, author of life, provider. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And on and on the accolades concerning Jesus. And you know what? It is perfectly normal and right to give him honor and glory for all of those things. It is who he is inherently. Therefore, we ascribe glory to the one who is absolutely worthy of all that glory. Amen? This is who he is. And yet, if serving others meant temporarily veiling his rightful glory as God, he was willing to do so for us, brethren. Wow. And the pertinent question is this. How about us? How about us? Because over and over again in the book of Philippians, we are told to preserve unity. And if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to cultivate selfless humility. And Paul says, look at the example of one who laid down his rights and privileges. Look at your Savior. Look at Jesus. Look at Him. And so the next time you and I are tempted to fight for our perceived rights, and what we think that we're entitled to. Check your heart. Look at Jesus. The next time that we're tempted to do that, even in the context of home life, marriage, parenting, kids toward your parents or grandparents, in the context of the church or out in the world, check your heart and look at Jesus. Is your mindset to give or to get? Is your mindset to serve or to be served? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. He sets the pattern and the example and the model for us, brethren. 
And so emulating the example of Christ begins with adopting the mindset of Christ, but also applying ourselves to the manner of Christ. Write that down, to the manner of Christ. Here we get into his actions. His actions fleshed out during the incarnation. And I want you to note a couple of astounding, humble action verbs by the incarnate, eternal Son of God. Pointing to his manner, to his humble actions. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. Verses 7 and 8. First of all, he, he emptied himself. Look at verse 7. He says, but... But in contrast to the pre-existent incarnate Christ using his divine status and privilege for selfish purposes, what does it say? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Boy, much ink, i got to tell you, has been poured over the meaning of this particular verb here. Emptied himself. What does it mean? Well, the basic definition means to make empty or to make something or someone void. That's the basic definition, but context also determines, in addition to etymology and definition, context determines the meaning of a word, doesn't it? Context, context, context are the three primary words of interpretation or the primary rules of interpretation. And so, consistent with verses 5 and 6, this cannot mean that at His incarnation, Christ ceased to be God. It cannot mean that. Remember, Paul has just said in verse 6 that Christ has eternally and in His incarnation, present tense, existed in the form of God. That in His essence and nature, He was, is, and forever will be God. Divine. And even during His earthly life in the Gospels, what have you seen in your Bible reading this year? As you looked at the life of Christ, I was reflecting on what I've seen even this year in my Gospel Bible reading. Glimpses of His deity everywhere, right? Just glimpses of His veiled deity and glory. Like when they were uh, going to throw Him over the cliff and He eluded their grasp. Uh, a mere man can't do that, right? There's a glimpse of His glory, of His deity. When He walked on water, can you do that? Can I do that? Of course not. Only God can do that. When He fed four and 5,000, that's just men, by the way. Throw in a, a wife and a couple of kiddos in there and you have 16, 20, 25,000 people that He fed two different times. Can you do that? Can I do that? Of course not. He didn't cease to be God. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I was reading this week, that He nearly spoke and all of those soldiers fell to the ground. You remember that? I can't do that. And He even said, I can call legions of angels. One angel can wipe all of those guys. One angel can wipe out 10,000 people in the Old Testament. That's the kind of power that Jesus has. And so He, again and again, we see in the Gospels that there, were, there, was, there was glory and majesty that Jesus still had. He still is and was the God-man there. And so He didn't cease to be God at His incarnation. For during His earthly life, we see His works. We hear His amazing words. And so what does this self-emptying mean then? What does it mean? Well, what it means is that during His incarnation, Christ voluntarily, look at the text, it says that He emptied Himself, right? Christ voluntarily, willingly, joyfully set aside the full and independent use of His divine attributes for a time. That's what it means. Christ voluntarily, willingly, joyfully set aside the full and independent use of His divine attributes for a time. That's what it means. At His glorious incarnation, He lived as fully God and fully man, completely dependent upon the precious Holy Spirit. If you remember, at His baptism, right, who came upon Him? 
looking like, uh, in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit to inaugurate Jesus' ministry and to empower Jesus for his earthly ministry as the God-man. And, of course, in submission to God the Father, he lived. Over and over again in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, this comes out. Jesus is saying things like, I came to do the will of my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. Remember that? That's what this means. Contemplate that. Brethren, here again, we're treading on holy ground. Eternal, mind-boggling realities that we don't fully comprehend, but we obviously uh, study God's Word and we respond in worship when we read some of these things and understand them, don't we? This is the beauty of Christmas. The reality of what we are celebrating. You and I must never think of Christ's incarnation, His coming to earth, listen to me, as a subtraction, but as an addition. It was an addition. He added a human nature to His already divine nature. It was subtraction by addition. That's what it was. He was and is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. If he is any less, if he's 99 of each of those, any of the, either of those two categories, he cannot be your redeemer. This is why Jesus is exclusively the only way, the truth, and the life. This is why no one comes to the Father but through Jesus, because of who he is. Who he is qualified him to be redeemer alone. No one else, Muhammad, Buddha, whoever else, don't qualify to be redeemer. Only Christ, the God-man. God with us. Emmanuel. He didn't become God. He was eternally and eternally has been and forever will be God. He didn't cease to be God when He came to earth. He added a human nature to His already divine nature. Mark it, brother and sister, and glory in it. Amen? Worship Him for it. The Lord Jesus is two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. The unity of the two natures at his incarnation, as the Chalcedonian Creed rightly asserts, are united, unconfused, unchangeable, indivisible, and inseparable. The distinction between the two natures, human and divine, is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature, human and divine, is preserved and concurs together into one person. Boy, that's a great statement, isn't it? Of how this works. The divine nature of Christ and His human nature. What's the point of that? That the Lord Jesus Christ is one person in two natures. This was the case during His incarnation and now forevermore is the reality. Our Savior is the the God-man. This is why Jesus, brethren, is unrivaled. This is why He is the incomparable one. No one is like Him. No one compares to Jesus. No one stacks up in the light of who He is. And did you notice, by the way, in verse 7, that the language there is emphatic, right? It says that he emptied, what? Himself. He emptied himself. This was not imposed on him. He's not reluctant in this act at the incarnation of emptying himself. He was not a helpless victim. It was God's gracious, sovereign choice to add a human nature to his already divine nature. Boy, it was his voluntary joyful, if I may add, prerogative to become fully man, knowing that he would experience the consequences upon himself of subjecting himself for a time and, and, and uh, consisting with the predetermined plan of God to subjecting himself to men, human beings. This was the divine design of, of God from eternity past. As someone has written 
by his gracious choice, the consequences came upon himself, the benefits upon us. Boy, that's true, isn't it? Jesus' condescension, brethren, was our greatest gain. His giving was our getting and receiving. What a Savior! No one compares to Jesus. Amen? No one does. This is the degree to which the eternal Son of God condescended on our behalf. But Paul's not done. How much further did Jesus empty himself and thus condescend? Look at verse 7. By taking the form of a bondservant, he says. Literally, a slave. Yes, with all of the negative connotations of what that word means. Yes. A bond slave, a servant, a slave. Literally, the lowest of the lows. The most humiliating of professions. Now, this is very key. Watch this. In verse 6, right? He told us that Christ eternally existed in the form of God, meaning that He was of the same essence and nature of God. In other words, He's God of very God. He said that in verse 6. Now look at verse 7. In verse 7, we're told that in His incarnation, Christ took upon the form, again, essence, nature of a, of a slave. You see that? That means the, the, that He took upon Himself the character and the characteristics of a bond slave. He wasn't just putting on an act, in other words. What this means is that Christ did not just pretend to be a slave, you know, putting on an act so that we at EBC would be able to read this and study this and say, oh, wow, what a great act Jesus put. What a great show. No. Christ clothed himself with the very essence of a slave and truly came to humbly serve us. Amen? This is the type of Savior that we have. He came, verse 7, in the likeness of men. Being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. Notice that. Though he remained fully God, he clothed himself with, with humanity. In other words, what he's saying here is he was really, really human. Really human. And when you understand the heresies of first, of first century Judaism that developed even later on into the next couple of hundred years, there was this heresy back in ancient times called doceticism. Doceticism from the Greek word dakeo, which meant to seem or to appear almost like sort of like an illusion. And there were those who basically said that Jesus only seemed or appeared from the human eye to be human, but in reality he wasn't really truly human. He just seemed or appeared to be human. Because the Gnostics, ancient Gnosticism, claimed that spirit was good and matter was evil, therefore Christ could not really be human if he's God. He only seemed or appeared this way. But Paul, he's saying the complete opposite, isn't he? Really, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Christ didn't only seem or appear to be human. He was really human. He was made in the likeness of men. Took the very form or essence of a slave, in fact. What are some evidences that Christ was fully human in the Gospels? Well, he was born... As a physical baby, wasn't he? He grew in stature and in favor with men, just like any other little human. Normal in that sense. He was subject to the same physical limitations, right? He wept. He became hungry, thirsty, tired. He needed sleep and respite and all of that and rest. He would often get away with his disciples because Jesus himself needed rest. So he would do that. He experienced and displayed normal human emotions. I mentioned weeping 
and righteous anger and compassion and tears and sadness and sorrow and love and mercy and kindness. All of those things, brethren, Jesus experienced, though blameless and sinless and perfect, right? Otherwise, if he's not blameless and perfect, he doesn't qualify to be your Redeemer. That's why the Bible says that he was perfect, fulfilled all righteousness. He was fully human. He had all the essential attributes of humanity, though perfect and sinless. Listen, if you ever doubt whether your Savior can identify with you, if you ever doubt whether your Savior can understand your humanness and your weaknesses and your propensities and susceptibilities, ponder this. Ponder the humiliation of Christ in the way that he condescended, right? To become a human like us. Though blameless and perfect and sinless. I don't know about you, but I want to follow the example of someone who, who actually was victorious over the sins that I struggle with. Amen? Jesus was that. Is that. That's why he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. I mean, just contemplate this condescension, right? I mean, it would have been enough for Jesus to just come to earth. To just come. That would have been condescension enough in the light of who he is in his infinite majesty and glory, right? Add that to the, the fact that he added a human nature. He didn't just come, but then he added a human nature to his already divine nature. That's further condescension right there. But he could have come as a king. He could have come as a politician. He could have come as a rich, powerful person. He could have come as one of those great Greek philosophers like Plato or Aristotle. Jesus could have come as one of those guys. He could have done this and given his exalted status, even if he would have chosen to do that, it would have still been condescension, wouldn't it? In light of who he is in his infinite glory and majesty. This would have been enough for him to do that. But Paul says, you want to know the extent to which the eternal Son of God condescended, how much He joyfully lowered Himself for you for the purpose of redeeming you. Instead of coming in great pomp, He not only added a human nature, but He came as a slave, the lowest of the low in society. Wow. And just keep in mind this. I was pondering this this week. That prior to His incarnation, the created angelic hosts the angels only knew the Son of God as exalted, didn't they? I mean, Christ had made them. He made the universe. He made all of the myriads and myriads of angels. He ordered them around. The Bible says that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the cult, right? For believers. These powerful angelic beings. Jesus made them as well as the universe. But can you imagine the astonishment of the myriads of angels at the birth of Jesus? Can you imagine that? Them looking from heaven down saying, Whoa! That's our Lord right there. A baby in a manger. That's Christ. Astounding, mind-boggling. I love what one brother writes. It is not that Christ exchanged the form of God for the form of a bondservant, but that He manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. I love that. What selfless humility. He didn't cease to be God. He chose, brethren, to show himself to the world as a slave, all the while being God in his infinite glory. This is the path he chose. Embracing the role of a servant, someone writes, never diminishes one's true essence. Instead, it merely reveals it. 
Embracing the role of a servant never diminishes one's true essence. It merely reveals it. In the case of Christ, God manifested his glory, you see, in the very incarnation of Jesus. That one with infinite glory and majesty could actually choose to come as a servant on our behalf. Boy, that should humble us, brothers and sisters. Now look, if we stop right there, this also would have been enough. We've seen enough. But Paul is not done speaking about Christ's humble condescension. Look at verse 8. This is the second action verb here. The first one being emptying himself. It says in verse 8 that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Again, look at the language. He humbled himself. That's important, isn't it? Because this means that this is voluntary, willing, joyful even, who for the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews 12, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who for the joy set before him, Jesus did that. He looked further to the prize of a redeemed for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It says for the joy set before him, he endured all of that. He chose this willing, voluntary, joyful, No one made him do this. No one coaxed him into this. He wasn't a helpless victim in the following, brothers and sisters. In this act of humbling himself, note, he humbled himself how? To what extent? By becoming obedient. By becoming obedient. Just stop right there. What does that mean? This is pointing to the active obedience of Jesus. To the perfect life that he lived fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, right? As the God-man, he perfectly obeyed God's word so that we have that imputed righteousness upon us, including the perfect life of Jesus Christ, as if we had lived that life. He became obedient. And then notice, how further did he condescend? He became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. How low can you go, Paul says? He not only died and subjected himself, yes, by the predetermined plan of God, but subjected himself for a time to human beings to put him on the cross. And then even death on the cross was his choice of death. How low can you go? Paul wants us to know that he did this to the point of death, even death on a cross, all the way to the end was his obedience. Why is the cross so significant here? Because you understand crucifixion. It wasn't a prestigious, popular way of of dying. It was actually slow death reserved for the the worst criminals, right? It was prolonged and, and public, usually in some prominent place, right where people, major highway or road, so that people could see the humiliation of the cross, so that they would be warned, don't ever rebel against Rome. That was the message of a cross. This is why Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's speaking of the tree, speaking of dying on a wooden cross. God cursed his own son on our behalf. Crushed him, you understand, on our behalf. What great condescension. Do you see what all of this is saying here? Think of the, the levels of condescension. Not only did the eternal son of God who possesses infinite glory and majesty come to earth, that's condescension enough. 
On top of that, he came to earth and clothed himself with humanity. He became a man, a human. That's another level of condescension. On top of that, he came to earth as a slave, not as someone prominent. Another level of condescension. On top of that, he was obedient in all aspects of the law on our behalf. Further condescension. Even subjected himself to to a wicked Roman government and authorities. He became obedient in all aspects, even under the government within the parameters of God's will. Further condescension. And that's not the end of it. He became obedient all the way to death from a human perspective, subjecting himself to sinful human beings. That's further condescension. And if that wasn't enough, he died on a cross, which is symbolic of being cursed and of shame and ridicule. Right? What are we saying? The emblem of suffering and shame? That's the wooden cross. Boy, he really condescended, didn't he? For the glory of his Father and for the good of sinners saved by grace like us. Such is the glorious, humble condescension of our God, brethren. Listen to this quote. Ordinary men have been humiliated and have died violent, painful deaths, but never did one die as Christ died. He had in his power to come down from the cross and destroy his enemies, and yet he willingly, joyfully died, not only suffering the unspeakable agony, but the torturous soul of a holy person bearing the sins of the world and for the first time experiencing separation from God his Father. No human frame has ever entered into the experience of Christ, the obedient servant who coming from the infinite height of glory went to the infinite depth of hell on behalf of sinners, end quote. That's good stuff, isn't it? So why did God the Son do this? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, we've talked about that, right? Majestic, glorious God. All accolades, everything belongs to Him. He sustains it all. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become what? Rich. Rich. He did all this, brethren, because of His great love and mercy. Rather than coming as a lofty king, arrayed in splendor, full of riches, He became poor, so that you and I might become rich together with Him. What a great, great Savior we have. But also, in accordance with Paul's point in the context, right? As Christ being an illustration of the ultimate example of humble, of, of selfless humility. Think about the implication for our lives, for us, from verses 2 through 4. That you and I need to be willing to lay down our lives for one another. Amen? Practicing selfless humility, willing to put others before our own needs, whether in the context of our home life, in the context of church life, in the context of out in the world, so that we might have, uh, have people asking about what is different about us as believers who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to flesh itself out, in other words, in the way that we live, brethren. This wonderful example, it's very practical theology, isn't it? How little our sacrifices, write someone, How little our sacrifices, our acts of unselfishness, and our suffering the slights of men seem in the shadow of that cross? If Christ were willing to do this for us, why should we ever get it? What should ever get in the way of our forgiving others and of having complete spiritual fellowship with those of like mind in Christ? What's he saying? That the glorious example of Christ, his selfless humility, becomes the pattern for us to emulate. Amen? 
Whenever you're having a difficult time with pride, whenever you're having a difficult time reconciling with others, loving others, look at Christ and remember the risen Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, reality that, Lord, you have extended your favor upon us in and through the person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great example. What a model. Thank you for the fact that Jesus came very different than the world. The world, in great pomp, exalts self. But Christ came initially at his first coming, lowering himself, never ceasing to become God and divine, but yet choosing to come and serve us, us, Father, us sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. You've given us grace by faith in Jesus. Father, I pray that that would also be we would also draw the implications for our own lives, practically speaking, as far as our interpersonal relationships, that we would be people who would love one another, that we would cultivate the essential ingredient of selfless humility in our hearts, and that we would constantly behold the glory of Jesus, especially during this Christmas time, that we would be reminded that that baby in the manger is the God-man, and that he must be worshipped. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ, that this Christmas season would be the time that they would turn from their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.